0: all right great to see everybody yeah i'm jacob i've had the pleasure of meeting a lot of you uh, but if i haven't met any of you uh we'll be fully excited to hopefully see you afterwards or in church later on um yeah so thanks for letting me come thanks for also distancing so that when i go full southern baptist and just spit starts flying out and uh, that you're safely away from me i appreciate that but uh, yeah i want to help us think about evangelism today and basically we have three goals I want us to think about what is evangelism, why do we do evangelism, and how do we do it? So again, the three kind of just questions we're going to go over is what is evangelism, why do we do evangelism, and how do we do evangelism? I'm particularly going to emphasize the first two parts. I'm going to trust that if we have to fly through the third one that you'll be able to think a little bit more about that in your discussion groups afterwards. Uh, But with that, let's get into our first question And I just want us to think about what is evangelism. And I'm going to start off, you should have it in your handouts, um, a definition by Max Stiles there uh, that I think is just really helpful. And it says, teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. So that's teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. And I just want us to run over the three core elements of that definition and think about why all of those are critical to defining evangelism that way. So first of all, we're going to have teaching. It's going to be one element of the gospel. The gospel, the actual content that we need to be sharing, is another thing we need to think about. And the aim to persuade. With the aim to persuade is a third critical component of doing good evangelistic work. So the first core mark of evangelism is that it's taught, that we are teaching people. So just a quick question, uh, genuinely. Can anyone think of an instance in the Bible where they're just out in nature and all of a sudden they just realize who god is and they just start trusting in him or they are watching the church they're not talking to them at all Uh, but all of a sudden i get i get it i figured it out can anybody think of an instance in the bible where that is true any takers going once twice three times no okay yeah you're right i don't think that exists if anybody can prove me wrong I will be happy for you to show me the, the chapter verse. But there is not a single instance that I'm aware of where somebody just is, is just seeing and thinking to themselves and comes to an understanding and a realization of God. If people could see and think their way to God, in fact, it would change everything we think about missions work because uh, texts like Romans 1, 19 through 20 wouldn't be true anymore. There it says, uh, what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Now, if that wasn't true, if people could just be out in nature and figure out God, we would never need to spend another cent on evangelism, or we would never have to send another people. We just need to sit here and pray, Lord, please show yourself in the sunrise. Just please make yourself clear through the rustling of the wind in the trees. Just let them, let them see. And, and God is there. But that people aren't figuring out God from that way because they're suppressing the truth. And so instead, the Bible actually says that the gospel always has to be heard. It has to be taught. We, we see that it's always declared, it's always heralded and preached. So later in Romans 10, 14 through 15, and I'm going to be kind of shifting through Bible verses. Hopefully most of them are in your handouts. If you want to be keeping up with me, I should just try to look for where we're going. But in Romans 10:14 through 15, it says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And then, you know, you skip one verse in 17, it says, so faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. I think that that's a fairly intuitive, a fairly easy text to understand. No one's ever believed in Christ who has not heard about Christ. We just always need to say that. And, um, you know, one actually, just quick plug, even as you're getting invested in the local church, I, I do think, I promise I'm not just a nine marks guy, just blindly throwing the church into everything, but really, I do think the church is even central here, because one of the things you see is how are they to preach unless they are sent? Well, who's, who's sending them? And, and when you think about Paul, when he's writing this, Acts 13, 1 through 3, he's praying in the church at Antioch, and they set him apart to go to the nations to preach the good news of Christ. So even as you're just getting invested, I mean, don't, don't go too rogue. I mean, IMB is a great uh, thing to go through eventually, but you should always want to be sent out by the church. You should want to have their backing, and you should want to really feel like there's someone behind you or a, a group, a body of Christ, propelling you out. Um, and so seek that affirmation um, through investing in the church, be sent out. So that's just got implications for those of you thinking about international missions. Just a good thing to think about. The church is not foreign to that project. It's actually rather central to the sending of the people who will go. Um, So that's just one implication. A couple other implications, really quick, of the fact that this is taught. is just one thing that evangelism is not, is it's not just humanitarian work. So, I mean, you can go to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Not really Democratic or Republic, but that's a lesson for a different time. Um, And you can go there with the largest food bank you've ever seen collected. And you can even have your shirts on that read University Baptist. I mean, it can just be the whole shirt. It's just soaking in UBC content. And, you know, everybody that you give a meal to, you can say, God bless you. And if that's all they ever hear, I mean, praise the Lord. You did a kind thing but you've not done evangelism, right? You haven't done evangelism at that stage. So it's not just humanitarian work. Even though you got the shirts, you've said something about God, Just to, you mentioned his name, you need to actually proclaim the gospel, which we're going to get to in a second. Um, but the final thing I just want to say is that because it's taught, because you need to be able to teach, it means the gospel has to be learned by yourself. You need to sit at the feet of Christ. And learn what the gospel is. So when somebody says, what do you believe as a Christian? Now, this doesn't have to be very complicated, uh, but we should know some critical text. So we're going through Mark right now, Mark 8:31. It's necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things, be rejected by the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, be killed, and raised again on the third day. I mean, hallelujah, you've just started to do evangelism when you start to communicate a message like that. Because now people are going to be like, what do you mean it's necessary? Boom, you're in. You can start explaining all these things. Or you can go Romans 10, we're in it right now. You, know, you must be- uh, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. It gives you two things to talk about. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? What does it mean that God raised him from the dead? You know, there's also, of course, I've heard, I'm sure you've heard of God, man, Christ response. That's a helpful way to think about it. There's the two ways of living, Trey may have mentioned uh, at some point. Those are all helpful ways, but you need to have learned some easy, concise, clear way to communicate the gospel. And so that's just something to to think about. Be in the scriptures. See what the gospel is. And so we're going to talk about the gospel now because that's the second stage of what we're doing. And I want to talk about it in two different ways. I think it has implications for our evangelistic work. There's kind of an objective reality to the gospel. And then there's kind of a personal reality to the gospel. And I want to talk about both of them really quick. And, and to get into the objective reality, can anybody um, tell me, what do you think the main storyline of the Bible is? Anybody have any answers to that? Feel free to just throw out guesses, too. Any takers? Main storyline of the Bible. Any thoughts? redeems us from our sins. Okay, that's certainly a huge part of it. The redemptive storyline, we talk about that through scripture. Uh, that's absolutely a, a critical component of what's happening from the garden to uh, the new Jerusalem. Anybody else want to add on to that? Say anyth- yeah, Jacob? The kingdom, the kingdom of God. What do you mean by that? Um, God's under God's reign. Absolutely. I, I, so I think actually if you take those two things that we've just said, the redemption from sin and the restoration and rule of God. So kind of the reunification of heaven and earth under God's rule through Christ's conquering work, I think is is kind of his redemptive work, is kind of just the main storyline of the Bible. And we see that in a couple places. So for example, Isaiah 52, seven, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. One of the the critical things Isaiah is pointing out is that it's going to be good news when God is reigning over his people again. And that's a military, that's kind of a triumphant, and we're going to see military kind of triumphal language all throughout the Bible. God has conquered Satan and death and sin. He's won. And that's good news. You're going to see this all the time. Second Kings 7-9 is a, is a lighter uh, example of this, where you've got these lepers. they got the Syrians have besieged uh, Israel, and uh, they just get slaughtered by an angel of the Lord, just decimated. And these, these lepers go out, and they're actually just hoarding all the good treasure that they're finding. And they actually say, this is not right. This is a day of good news for all of Israel, because the enemy's been defeated. And we're going to see that all the time. So there's this kingdom motif, uh, not just a motif, the reality of the kingdom. Uh, so when Satan tempts Christ in Matthew 4, 8 and 9, he says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you'll just bow down and worship me. That's a really a critical part of the conflict going on. But, but Christ just doesn't even play Satan's game. Instead, he says, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Christ isn't Here, just to take over the old kingdoms of earth. So when you get to Daniel 7, 1 through 8, you get to Revelation 19. He doesn't say to Babylon, like, hey, time to clean you up. And I'm going to just get on the back of the beast and I'm going to ride on it now. No, he absolutely chops the head off, crushes it, and then brings his own kingdom in and calls people into it. And that really brings us into the second part. There is this personal, absolutely sweet reality that the gospel is good news for you and for me, and we can enter into the kingdom. Now, how does that happen, right? God is saving a people. Christ is saving a people, Colossians 1, 12 through 14. The Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see how even the two things we brought up, redemption, the forgiveness of sins, he's transferred you into the kingdom, both right there in a rich text. And the only final question is, how? How does God transfer you from one kingdom to the other? And this is, of course, one of the central things we talk about. It's through the cross of Christ. Absolutely. In Colossians two thirteen through 14, Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Again, you just see this beautiful mingling. The cross is both simultaneously how Christ undoes the power of his opponents and saves his people. And he's doing it all on the cross where we have the cancellation of our debts owed to God. And so we're gonna get there in Mark 10, you know, 45. The son of man came to be a ransom for many. And so that's, that's just kind of the, the core of the gospel uh, is this idea that there's a kingdom being brought by Christ and there's a people being saved into that kingdom through the cross of Christ. Okay? Um, There was a lot more we could say, but I think that'll suffice for now. And then the third and final part, before I open it up for any questions you may have, is that we have an aim to persuade. Now, I think this is oftentimes not talked about enough, that to do really true evangelism work, we have to have an aim to persuade. So, at some point, if you teach somebody the gospel, you tell them, hey, I think Christ is building a kingdom, and he saved me from my sins. What is something that somebody could potentially say to you, especially in our postmodern culture? Anybody ever gotten responses like, "If you've just, you're like, I believe in Jesus Christ." What, what could somebody say back to you? Well, they might ask why, but honestly, a lot of times, what I find is that people actually aren't really interested in hearing. They're just like, "That's really cool for you." That's really cool for you. You know, you do you. I'm so glad you found your inner truth. I respect that. that. Yeah. You know, you do you. That's amazing. And you're like, ah, all right. Am I going to go for it? Because to do evangelism, you've got to realize that they're not there yet. There's got to be a real call. And so this is where things get dicey and where the gospel gets really offensive. But to do evangelism, we've got to go and we've got to tell them, actually, uh, this isn't just my truth. There's, that's why the objective reality, that God's bringing a kingdom, is so important. This is not just internalized, feel-good, spiritual truth that you seem to find helpful in your life. You're actually responding to the reality of the world under Christ. And so John fourteen six, Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And you've got to be willing to tell people that. So this brings us to, we're going to be in uh, 2 Corinthians 5. If you do want to turn there, I just want to highlight a number of things from that that text. Uh, We are persuading people as those given the ministry of reconciliation and its message. So 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19, it says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now, we're familiar with that part, right? We talked about that. God's not counting our trespasses. And praise the Lord. I mean, we just can't ever get tired of that news. Uh, He does not count our trespasses against us. But then, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We are entrusted. What a weighty and glorious reality that the God... Who is bringing redemption of sins would entrust us with a, with the the message of reconciliation and what is this message of reconciliation verses 20 to 21 continue therefore we are ambassadors for christ god making his appeal through us we implore you and this is this is really what you need to be telling people we implore you on behalf of christ be reconciled to god For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what you need to be telling people. Look, that's great. Yeah, it is awesome that I found Christ. It would be awesome if you found Christ as well. You need to be reconciled to God. And note the imploring in 2 Corinthians 5, 11, that's where we get that word, persuade. He says, we are persuading people. I mean, you are straining, toiling, trying to show them they need to change their mind. And then in 6, 1 through 2, Paul makes it clear when he's talking about these things in in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 2. He says uh, that now is the day of salvation. You might not have tomorrow. We presume upon tomorrow far too often, and, and we need to tell people, Now is the day of salvation. Respond, repent, believe, trust in Christ. So, uh, I mean, one just quick kind of analogy that you might think about how this looks like is imagine that you're in a college class, which a lot of you should have an easy time imagining, uh, is that you get a syllabus on the first day. Now imagine you all go out and you burn your syllabuses and you just say, that's not real. Well, that would be like suppressing the truth, wouldn't it? And you're just like, we're just not going to pay attention to that. And actually, I'm going to do class my own way. And then you get to the last day of class, and the teacher comes, and he, and he, you know, he or she hands you a syl- the syllabus again and says, you know, Ashton, like, the final is today. And nobody knows about it. And you're going, oh, my goodness, I didn't know about it. But now I do. I need to take the final. And he says, will you also go and tell all the other students about the final? Because if they don't show up, There's no way they're passing this class. Now, if you went and you just told somebody, hey, the final's today, and they're like, oh, that's great. I hope it goes well for you. You're like, oh, you don't get it. You don't get it. You've got to show up, too. Otherwise, you're done. You're done. So that's just one way you can think about it, if you ever want to try to explain this to people. All right. uh, I'm going to move into the why. We do evangelism now uh, to try to keep us moving, but that's any quick questions, really quick, on what evangelism is? It's teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Okay, I'm, I'm going to keep moving. Uh, we've got discussion time afterwards. Uh, why do we do evangelism? I've got three points. I might have not put these in my, the handout as concisely as I have them now, but the three points I want to say, Christ is one, Christ has sent us, and Christ is coming. Those are my three main points. I think I wrote something different. Don't blame Trey. That was me. Forgive me. You can just cross them out. Christ has, uh, Christ has won, Christ has sent us, and Christ is coming. Those are your three main reasons why we do evangelism. So real quick, Christ is one. We've already talked about it a little bit. But in Daniel 7:13 through 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, that perfectly parallels with what I think happens in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen through 20, where Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So so why is the Son of Man given a kingdom? Because the Son of Man, the eternal Son of God, does not need anything. He did not come and die for anything that he was lacking. Why was he given a kingdom? Well, it's there in Daniel 7. It says, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That's why he built a kingdom, so that he would have all nations and peoples and languages serving him. And that's what he does. Right when Christ, he says, I have all authority. This is a fulfillment of the inheritance, the Son of Man taking on the title of ruler. And what does he do? I mean, it's just fulfillment of Daniel 7. Go and get my kingdom for me. And so that's what, we're doing this because Christ is one. And that is something that we should always consider. So Ephesians 1.18, it says we're his inheritance. When Christ won, so when he says, you know, anybody who enters into a strong man's house first ties him up and then plunders him. One of the things Christ is doing on the cross, he bound up Satan, just destroyed him. And then he's plundering Satan's kingdom. And we're the plunder. So this is part of the reason he saves us. And uh, even part of the reason we rest in God's sovereignty in salvation. This is part of it. We're actually defending Christ's kingship when we defend God's sovereignty in salvation. Because if Christ is king and we're his inheritance and he has died and risen again and defeated all the enemies that we say he does. And then he goes up to the right hand of the father and he's just kind of wringing his hands. And he's like, I just really hope they believe. I really hope I get my inheritance. Does that sound very kingly? I don't think Christ is wringing his hands quite like that. (laughs) I actually think Christ in his authority is saving people that he longs to save. And that's what he's doing. And so, I mean, we have that great song of Church Arise uh, that says, And Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. He will have it. So Christ is one. That's that's one thing um, that we should think about. Christ has sent us. Okay, and there's two elements I want to think about with this. He sent us. So one simple answer is this, it's obedient. Evangelism should be done because it's obedient. And, and we can say more and we will. But really, that can be the end of the conversation if it needed to be. Christ has sent us. And so John 17:18, as the Father sent me into the world, so I have sent my disciples into the world. So Jesus' obedience in coming and dying on the cross is the same kind of obedience we should show him when he sends us into the world. And and it could be as simple as that, but we know that it does go beyond that because our obedience is driven by love. That's why Jesus came and obeyed the Father. So John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So those who love him keep his commandments. So the primary reason we share is because God's love has been poured out into our hearts, Romans 5, 5. And we also know that it's out of the storehouse of the heart, that people speak now the reason i'm connecting those is because like it says uh, out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks so if god's love has been poured into your hearts it's just brimming to the max as you realize what christ has done for you really it should be difficult to not tell people about christ and it, it really says something about the condition of our hearts when it's easy to hide him from other people we need to be doing why Where, do I, where is the love of God if I can keep Christ pushed down? And that's even just dangerous. Don't, don't shove him down and hide. Because that is saying something about what you're doing to your heart in terms of your response to Christ. And we can even think about Mark 8.38, you know, tying it into some of our sermons. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and simple generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So if the pattern of your life is when people are like, oh, man, those Christians, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, Christians, and you're kind of just ducking back and hiding constantly. If that's if a that's general pattern of your life, you need to investigate that, because Christ has a strong admonition for people who tend to spend their lives being ashamed of him. Like, if you're like, oh, I don't really want to be associated with Christ right now, watch out, because it's actually going to be that when Christ shows up and you're like, hey, Christ, and he's like, I, I don't really... I don't really want to be associated with you, and so we need to repent if that's our pattern, and we need to instead be bold and share Christ. And just you can look—one uh, of the greatest markers of someone who has been saved. One of the first things people regularly do uh, is that they start sharing about Christ. So the thief on the cross in Luke twenty-three forty, Saul in the synagogue in Acts nine twenty, and the Samaritan woman in John four twenty-nine—they all have one thing in common they immediately just kind of start sharing about Christ. Paul in the synagogue immediately starts saying, He's the Son of God. And that's just the first. That's one of the first markers that that love of God has been poured out into your heart. So Christ is coming. The wrath of God is coming with Christ. So Colossians 3, 5 through 6, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these... The wrath of God is coming. And it, it, hell is real, as Trey prayed. Hell is real. The wrath of God is coming. And in fact, John three eighteen: whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned. When? Already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's Christ himself speaking. So that's not just Paul coming up with something. That's Christ. Christ will send people to hell. That's a really uncomfortable thought, But it's a true thought, Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. There's people who will be sent to hell by Christ, and he'll be just, and he'll be right to do it. So if you believe in the wrath of God and you love your neighbor, you will call them to turn to Christ. It's the most loving thing you can do. In fact, the most hateful thing you could probably do is to hide that from other people. So, I mean, just imagine the person who's standing before the throne of God one day and you never told them about him. Now, I mean, is their sin still their problem? Yes, absolutely. You're not accountable for their sin. But just imagine that they were like, I I knew all these Christians and I never once heard this. Like, let it not be true that people around us who don't believe can say that. Don't let that be our testimony. So that's something that we need to consider. And that Charles Spurgeon quote there at the end, I just, I just love it. So, I mean, this should be our mantra. You know, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. That's just, oh, the man, Spurgeon could be money sometimes. And that's such a good line like if they're going to go to hell let, let's like form a barricade and let's make sure that they have to leap over our dead bodies that would be such a great testimony for christ okay so i'm going to move in briefly uh, i know i'm running short on time but i want to go over four things how do we do it how do we do it first we pray it's always got to start with prayer acts four thirty one. and when they had prayed The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness when they had prayed. Ephesians 6, 19 through 20, and pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And just one quick way that you can pray, I call it Bob. (laughs) It's, It's burden, opportunity, and boldness. Just pray for that every day. Lord, give me a burden for the lost. Give me opportunities to speak to the lost. And give me boldness to actually speak to them. Now, the great thing I love about this, you can't get away from the disposition of your heart when you pray like this. Because the first thing is, Lord, give me a burden for the lost. And when you start praying like that, you're going to start seeing a lot more opportunities. Um, because you're going to realize there's a lot of lost people around us. Okay, so pay attention. Uh, I'm not going to read it all, just in the sake of time. But it, you can study Acts 17. I just love how Paul knows how religious these people are trying to be. He knows they're poets, which I think means he's listened to them in the marketplace. And he's kind of picked up like, oh, Epimenides, that's a useful quote. I'll use that when I preach the gospel. He knows like kind of who they listen to, who they respect, what they care about. And he uses all these things in a plea to them. And so I do think it's good. You don't have to read all the books. But listen to people. Listen to what they care about. And kind of spit their own language back at them if you have the chance. Pay attention to them. Ask good questions. I mean, so when you're talking about their family and, you know, you know ask them, like, well, what was your home-like life? You know, how many brothers and sisters? I mean, were you a religious family? What was that like? Just start asking bolder questions, and you'll start to hear people unraveling their hearts before you, and it'll give you chances to speak. So pay attention. That's a great way, and that's from Acts 17. Uh, testimony. Testimony is a great way. Uh, John 4 is where the next two of our points come from. Uh, Look, one thing evangelism doesn't have to be is hard, at least in terms of the complexity of the message we need to deliver. It can be really simple. You may not know anything else other than that your sins are paid for. The woman in John 4 certainly doesn't. She just goes in. I love what she she just runs in and she says, I met a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Messiah? What, What a great line. You know, this woman who like, has been hiding in shame her whole life, Christ meets her. And now she's like, actually shouting out what should be her own shame at people. And she's like, do you want to go meet him? And they're kind of like, yeah, honestly, anybody who can produce this effect in you, I'm actually interested in. And so our testimonies, just tell how Christ has delivered you from sin. Um, and that's from John four twenty eight through 30. And then the final thing, in the same passage, Scripture, read the Bible with people. So actually some will believe when you tell your testimony in John 4:39 it says many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. But many more will believe through the method of getting them into Christ's word. So John 4:40 40 through 42 when the Samaritans came to him they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there 2 days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So if you meet that hard heart, just is like, not do anything, ask them to read Scripture. Ask them to read Scripture. And if they will, praise the Lord. Let the work do what it does best. Because uh, one, one tip, don't waste too much time on apologetics and evangelism. Look, if you've ever met a materialist, oh my gosh, do not go around and around and around with them for two hours. It, they are suppressing the truth. And they will duck and dodge and dip and dive and dodge until, you know, like, they just, you're like, where are we even at anymore? Get them into scripture. Be like, would you like to read what I'm trying to say to you? And if they say no, shake the feet off, you know, shake the dust off your feet and be like, okay. But if they will read, then trust that Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. It can pierce the thoughts and intentions in a way that you can't so get them reading scripture with you when you meet that heart and heart that's just like not interested in what you're saying that's the last thing the most important thing the critical thing to ask them so with that yeah we need to go in light of the triumph of cross of, of the cross and of christ and we need to tell people again teaching them the gospel with the aim to persuade so i'm going to pray for us real quick and then we've got some time for discussion questions dear heavenly father come before uh we just come before you and we thank you for the weighty and glorious privilege that it is to share your good news with other people lord that you would entrust us with a a ministry and a message of reconciliation lord help us to be bold help us to share this lord even help us to be comfortable that to to some we will be an aroma of christ leading to life and to others we'll be an aroma of christ leading to death lord that's a, a weighty thing let us count that cost and let us be comfortable that you will have the inheritance for which you died, your kingdom full of the peoples of the nations. And let us be confident in you, in your saving, redemptive work, in the kingdom you are bringing. And let us tell people, uh, so that if they may go to hell, they may go to hell um, warned and prayed for. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.